2: Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
3: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey,
2: guys. Dr. Santos here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher.
3: And Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Joyous, de- non-denominational winter Kwan- festival Kwanzaa? holiday.
2: What do we say for Kwanzaa?
3: A happy Kwanzaa?
2: Happy Kwanzaa? Yeah. All, all the holiday.
3: For a large portion of the world. We're all celebrating Christmas, and you know what that means? Santa Claus.
2: Santa Claus?
3: Yeah, Santa Claus. Mm. You may be asking yourself, what in the world could Santa Claus possibly have to do with medicine?
2: If you're thinking that right now, welcome, new listener.
3: (laughs) (laughs) One of the big things I always used to do as a little kid. For uh, every Christmas was leave out milk and cookies for Santa Claus. And of course, a carrot or two for Rudolph. Oh,
2: yes. The carrots for the reindeer were a huge deal. Because, you know, if Santa's transportation system doesn't work in any gets Absolutely.
3: This <laughs> week for our, our... I figured we would focus on some medical milk and cookies. And that's not a metaphor. All of the stories today involve medical issues with milk and or cookies.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I really thought for this, there would have to be some serious digging going on. No spoilers, but the, the connections that you make through here are going to be absolutely amazing. I, I love, I love the, the stories you put together for this. Three words uh,
3: for you, Santosh. hmm milk and cereal milk and cereal milk and cereal cereal and milk
2: <laughs> you just showed me this this song in this video
3: but let's start the first story off with the kind of milk you definitely don't want to find i already gave mm. you a minor spoiler about the story but if i were to tell it as a mystery i would take you back to the 1850s in new york where city okay. babies were being mysteriously poisoned.
2: Dun, dun,
3: dun! Nearly 8,000 babies a year were, for lack of a better word, shriveling to death from uncontrollable volume loss and diarrhea, with no one the wiser as to why, until 1858, when enterprising journalist Frank Leslie unveiled the offender in a series of scathing exposés.
2: Wow, he he maybe did some like contact tracing and stuff, just like uh, our old friend John Snow all the way back in London.
3: And at the end of his investigative journalism, the culprit was found to be milk, swill milk, to be exact. Uh, do you know Sw- what, what swill milk is?
2: L- like swill, as in the term for like yucky or crap, or yes,
3: not something swole like that. as in muscular, nor swell no. as in good.
2: Yeah. Swill, like as in, oh, uh, wh- why would you drink that swill? You know, like the the old timey way of saying that, like, why would you drink that disgusting stuff?
3: Right. Yeah, And swill milk was the tainted result of miasmic dairy cows being fed basically leftover mash from all the New York whiskey distilleries.
2: Okay. okay. so the distillers
3: so- were looking to profit from their leftover grain.
2: Yeah. Oh, oh gotcha. So after you, you're using the grain to ferment, to make alcohol, but then there's like a waste product afterwards. There's mash.
3: And that yeah. mash is okay. basically, you know, all the
2: bacteria and maybe fungus that, that actually acts on the, on the, on the grain to make the alcohol. Yeah. And but then it's,
3: it's chock full of it. And then this was fed to cows and those cows would get hammered and or sick. <laughs> oh, and God. then the milk that they produce would be swill. Uh, So New Yorkers began gravitating towards pure country milk, which was unfortunately a very intentional misbranding of swill milk wagons and on swill milk street corner vendor signs.
2: The swill cows were advertised as the pure country cows. I actually didn't know this before that uh, you know of course if if a you know cow eats something that makes it sick then of course it will get sick but i did not think of those bacteria you know if if it's going through the bloodstream and everything else and then it ends up in the lactating glands and the udders and in the the you know the breasts of the cow then it would be shed there. I I wasn't thinking about that at all. So these cows must have been really sick.
3: It didn't help that this was right around the Industrial Revolution when they weren't sure. in, a, shall we say, Whole Foods conditions.
2: God. Okay. Okay.
3: Uh, Gross. Now, <laughs> swill milk or pure country milk. Was being sold exactly. for as little as six cents a quart, which really appealed to folks who needed to wean early so they could return to work.
2: And this was before we had formula as we know it today. So they had to, the the kind of um, intuitive thing to wean off of was to
3: cows. Well, how is this even possible? Like, why do you have cows and whiskey in such close proximity to each other to begin with?
2: <laughs> okay. Okay. Or maybe
3: you weren't asking that. I was wondering. <laughs>
2: well i i mean i'm thinking that so the idea must be that like distilleries are fairly close by to farms right because you you basically you have to take no the grain not from even the close no not even close okay. because
3: here's the thing bringing milk into downtown manhattan from rural farms in orange and westchester counties opened up the potential for it to spoil within the confines uh-huh. of a rail car you know pasteurization hadn't really been invented yet louis
2: louis had to <laughs> Come around a little bit. It later. was
3: coming. It was coming, but it wasn't quite <laughs> yeah. there yet. Uh, having yeah. pure milk, having pure milk dairies in urban areas as opposed to rural farms wasn't really a feasible option. And, you know, gotcha. New York didn't exactly have an abundance of grazing pasture. So instead, distillers would attach metal sheds to their facilities and pipe in their hot cereal byproduct. They basically looked at all their crud and said, we're going to import cows to eat our waste
2: oh gotcha okay 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 this was an incidental byproduct of all of this
3: yeah and so well the the distillers were like look we can make money off our waste and produce milk in the city out competing these rural farmers and the swill cows produced you know between five and 25 times more milk than their grass-fed counterparts probably because you know their kidneys were slowly shutting down
2: (laughs) (laughs) so Oh, and uh, well, but it may have something to do with what whatever was in the mash anyway, as well.
3: Well, you're a Star Wars fan, right? The resulting the resulting liquid that came out of these swill cows was thin and had a bluish tint. Blue. (laughs) So in order to make it in order to make it look white like pure country milk they added chalk flour eggs plaster of paris all these things to increase the color plaster and consistency of
2: paris? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like spackle like the the stuff that you cover your wall with yep. oh, <laughs> oh but, and by the way I, I'm, I'm making these noises and everything fully cognizant that, you know, but what was this, the 1800s? So like in, in a couple of hundred years from now, they're probably going to look back at us and go, what were they doing? <laughs> so I, you know, I fully acknowledge that there's going to be stuff on, in our day and age that has the same. Oh, well: or, or in, keeping, in keeping
3: with the uh, rules and regulations of the time, folks who were opposed to Frank Leslie publishing this article that revealed this is what whiskey distillers were doing. His milk for you know, quite a while after, was left at his door as a mix of milk and pus.
2: Oh, gross dude.
3: So you know what he did? He took it to a scientist and exa- it examined for the bacteria in it and then published a piece on that.
2: Oh, okay. Oh, so if he wasn't ordering milk from those farms, he may have never found out. Like if, if he was going... Well, no, 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 no. This was like- what
3: they did to get revenge on him. They said, oh, yeah? You think milk is so bad? We're going to deliver you the worst of the worst. And he said, oh, yeah? Well, I'm taking this to the papers and had it oh. examined and then basically did the got milk ads of his day such as what kind of milk do you know what your kids are drinking <laughs> and, and in true like tiktok or twitter burn fashion he would publish precise maps depicting the street corners where swill milk was sold and where it was okay. produced
2: oh oh he doxed them mhm he uh, industrial age doxed them
3: Essentially, the, the tug-of-war scandal between cheap yeah. manufactured foods and natural healthy variations led sure. to the association of multiple milk safety commissions. The next part of that is, when you think of milk, what is it usually in? Like, what's the container for milk?
2: Uh, nowadays, um, some sort of paper product uh, like a carton um, it can be in plastic like a jug or uh, I kind of miss this and I think it's still available in many parts of the world including Canada the do you remember the milk bag the plastic bag mm-hmm. so you had to buy a separate container and you'd put it in and you'd snip the corner um, and it actually reduced waste quite a bit so yeah um, paper plastic by and large
3: yeah um, and even further back glass. Now, oh
2: yeah, this is the old the milkman.
3: Yeah. Which yeah. no one, I I almost guarantee you, certainly no one listening to this podcast has seen, although yeah. a few of our uh my more mature listeners may remember.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and there was also well, well he, because he was the visitor door to door, right? Um so he was the equivalent of the you know oh the salacious story you know the way that we have maybe nowadays about like the ups guy you know kind of uh oh just leave the delivery back here young man you know type thing.
3: right so early like early sexy time fantasies of the day i'm sure of, uh, of, uh,
2: of yeah the milkman coming in and as a <laughs> So but you, you have did things you... like the oh where did where did that red come from? Oh, <laughs> what what color is the milkman? Yeah. Okay.
3: Um yeah. but did you know that the whole idea of putting milk in bottles was directly the result of a medical decision?
2: Uh no. I would have thought that it was well, because they didn't have the same kind of paper products you know back at that time, and, and of course plastics were you no know, nowhere in sight, glass does make a good amount of sense in terms of it's clean and um, you know it's transparent so you can actually see what's in there.
0: Oh,
3: um, What did you think the milkman delivered milk in before, like that he just led the cow around town? Like some sort of (laughs) primitive taco truck?
2: (laughs) Well, that can happen, but I mean, there, for the longest time, you know, you were talking about the bucket, uh, in our previous story that would often be just the delivery method is that, um, you'd either take the bucket to the farm or you'd get delivered a bucket that you'd have to return like the next day. Yeah.
3: So one of the very first glass milk bottles, you know, remember we're Mm -hmm. in the same, Late 1850s was this whole period of scare about swill milk and infant mortality that was proved but never really acted upon because the main people exposing it were uh, advocating temperance. They're like, don't drink whiskey because it's destroying milk. And people are like, but I like whiskey. Why not just tell me to not drink milk or not give (laughs) my kids milk? I'm not giving up my alcohol. Decades later, uh-huh. In the 1880s, Dr. Henry Thatcher, after seeing a milkman making deliveries from an open bucket into which a right. child's filthy rag doll had accidentally <laughs> fallen.
2: <Gross. laughs> yeah, because there was no lid on the damn thing.
3: Mm-hmm. Remember? I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the, well, the other issue was that, uh, aside from the lid, is that you were basically, I think, for the week you were dispensing from this giant bucket and so the the amount of stuff that could like fall in fall out and was just awful
3: now eventually they did have kettle tops patented and developed but uh, even before that dr henry thatcher after seeing this went you know i remember there was a big thing with milk and contamination and (laughs) developed and patented what he called the common sense milk jar that was sealed with a wax paper disc pressed into a groove in the bottle's neck. And therefore, Mm -hmm. the milk bottle and the regular morning arrival of the milkman weren't risking delivering bacteria and disease along with dairy. And they remained a part (laughs) of American life until I think, the 1950s is when the milkman stopped showing up
2: for a given family you would put an order with the milkman of you know please leave x number of bottles at the door or on the porch so and then of course you know you get to see a guy and have a conversation in the morning how you doing how you doing yeah
3: let's move on to our next medical milk story and this is one that you may remember We've we've Touched on in the past, but at one point for a very brief period in history, uh, milk was used as an alternative for blood in transfusions.
2: Yes, we did talk about this because it there's an intuition here because you have you know sugars that you need, you have a good amount of electrolytes, um, and then you have the proteins which work well as an osmotic component. Um, you know, so that you don't the the fluid basically doesn't leak out of your capillaries and stuff, so it makes sense in a way um but yeah there there's a good few reasons why it wasn't very successful
3: well let's let's talk a little bit about it in some more detail so we're again around the eighteen eighties, so same rough time period last quarter of the nineteenth century as swill milk and common sense mm. milk jars. And at the same time, there was a lot of dissatisfaction with blood transfusions for a lot of the same reasons there's dissatisfaction with vaccinations now.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, to be fair, we didn't have all of the protections and screenings that we have now. So there was quite a bit of danger associated with um, blood transfusions. Um, but yeah, you're right, Josh, there was still a superstitions in some cases, but you know, weird kind of thing is like, oh, you know, it's a life-saving thing in a lot of cases and people would shy away for
3: well, nonsense reasons. People were by and large becoming frustrated and discouraged with blood as a transfusion product and effective substitutes were sought. And the first attempt was in, of all places, Canada in 1854, the transfusion of cow's milk. Uh, oh. <laughs> however, however, it achieved its greatest popularity in the U.S. Uh, throughout for about a two-year period, 1878 to 1880, where people attempted to transfuse okay. milk from cows, goats, and yes, even humans. How do you transfuse oh, milk I... from a human? Carefully.
0: <laughs>
3: um,
2: well, I'm I'm assuming you'd harvest like. <laughs> You wouldn't take it straight out of the breast, like you'd, you'd harvest the, you'd, you'd milk, you know, into a container.
3: <laughs> you'd harvest from the breast.
2: Yeah, well, and I would transfuse. You, you, I'm not, i can't say that you milk a woman. Can you? Say, <laughs> you you pump. You pump. <laughs> and then you you have a, a, wo- you have a bottle. We're going
3: to have to look into this for future episodes. What kind of breast pumps were available in the 1800s?
2: Oh, that would be a, a history of breast pumps would be pretty damn cool, probably.
3: Um, But yeah, so the greatest popularity of milk transfusions was in North America. And the very mm. first IV injection of milk into humans was practiced by, and you could not pick better names, okay. doctors James Bovell and Edwin Hodder. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds nothing so at all bovine. similar to bovine yeah. and right and utter uh, <laughs> so dr james bovell and edwin hotter in toronto canada mm-hmm. during a cholera epidemic of 1854 uh-huh. and okay, okay. and their rationale for injecting milk in place of blood stemmed from or, earlier or
2: saline by the way
3: or saline, uh, stemmed uh-huh. from earlier experiments by a scientist name of Dunn and concluded that the oily and fatty particles in milk could convert into white corpuscles of the blood. So he thought milk, you could okay. essentially inject immunity and it would become white blood cells.
2: I kind of understand. Okay. So morphologically, from the standpoint of, you know, kind of seeing what you could with the naked eye. Yeah, it would look like they'd glob up and it would look like a white cell.
3: So the Completely very first... Wrong. Yeah, it's, it's by wrong. The way,
2: <laughs> by the way, they could have been transfusing some immune proteins because, of course, human breast milk contains a chock full of antibody. But I, don't, I still don't think it would work in the right way. So they were kind of right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't have a cow, man. Yeah, <laughs> have, have just part
2: don't. Um, yeah, yeah. Ha, so have, have blood instead of a cow. <laughs>
3: so the very first patient was a 40 year old man who responded dramatically uh, and dramatically well to the injection of 12 ounces of cow's milk. Uh, okay. The cow had been brought to the hospital and in true sterile technique, milked through gauze into a bowl okay, okay. kept at 100 degrees Fahrenheit by immersion in warm water.
2: Oh, th- okay. So he, not quite pasteurization, but he was, you know, boiling to kill any bacteria.
3: They then repeated this procedure on a second patient three days later, transfusing again, about eight to 10 ounces of milk with equally good results. Uh, okay, however, okay. two other patients who they transfused the following week died. hmm Uh, and, and Bovell also writes in, you know, kind of a side margin that three patients transfused with milk by one of his students all died shortly afterwards.
2: (laughs) Um, I do have to give a shout out though, at this point, because we're, we're coming into evidence-based medicine, right? Where people aren't going strictly on theory. They're actually looking at you know outcomes and writing them down and, and actually trying to adjust based on hypotheses so that that I, i'm i'm glad it was like this because otherwise you know with all the biases we humans have before it would be very easy to be like ah i saved one this much worse you know.
3: Well, after five people died from milk transfusion, or at least shortly after in a not unrelated time period. Research on this kind of petered out and didn't show up again until the eighteen seventies.
2: Okay. <laughs> how did this just like pop up again out of nowhere after dying? When ignominy.
3: when Dr. Joseph Howe, as in How okay. Did This Pop Up Again of New York City, used okay. it on a patient with generalized tuberculosis. Now okay. unlike Hotter and Bovel, Bovel uh-huh. uh Howe uh-huh. used goat's milk for the procedure and okay, noted okay. that his patient began experiencing Vertigo and uh-huh. stigmas, that kind of weird, quick, drunken, jerking movements of your eyes.
2: Of uh, your eyes, yeah, yeah.
3: Followed by chest pain after <laughs> oh, IV God. injection of just one and a half ounces of milk. So he's like, Look, twelve oh, ounces boy. killed people. I'm going to give you (laughs) one ounce and they start getting chest pain.
2: Test dose, test dose. Um, I'm trying to conceive of what might've been causing these symptoms. I mean, the, the central nervous systems are the, the, those symptoms are worrisome and I'm trying to conceive of like, what would have possibly caused that so quickly? I do not know.
3: Well, I mean, I imagine it wouldn't be dissimilar from blood transfusion reactions, but you're activating a lot more of the immune system because you recognize it as not self.
2: Oh, so maybe actually like cerebellitis, like inflammation of the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. Um, That would make sense. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And then the chest pain.
3: You're also potentially having
2: like blood clots and stuff
3: or fat embolisms.
2: Or fat embolisms. that would make a ton of sense. Absolutely. So clogging off the blood vessels that go to the lungs and, and causing that pain, or maybe even the the coronaries in the heart.
3: Um, yeah, not to mention the induced or indirect vasculitis you're getting from introducing foreign bodies directly into the bloodstream. Like, they may not be bacteria. <laughs> sure. It would be sure. almost like a sterile, you know, we see in urine sometimes a sterile pyuria, where there's a lot of white blood cells, white cells but no actual bacteria this would be a similar thing where the immune system's activated even though there's nothing actively attacking just foreign bodies right
2: just just sensing foreign proteins and fats and just going, this shouldn't be here. (laughs) Uh,
3: So later in the day, that patient manifested similar symptoms, again, dizziness and chest pain after getting three more ounces of goat's milk, which had been left at room temperature instead of cold or warm or whatever he did the first time. And uh, Howe observed that, notwithstanding the fact that the patient thought himself benefited, I am of the opinion it had no effect. Uh, so <laughs> okay. the patient said, you know what? This milk stuff you injected that caused me chest pain and dizziness and all these side effects, I think it's working. And how said, <laughs> no, sir, it is not. And the patient said, no, no, I'm feeling much better and died the following day.
2: Oh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, he was probably feeling better from when he was actively having chest pain. Yeah.
3: You know, so... <laughs> Look, you can lead a person to water, but you can't transfuse them with milk. Um, so shortly, I'm sure thereafter, the yeah. shortly thereafter, Hal repeated the procedure on a second patient who was already terminally ill, so he's at least trying to cover his bases, with sure. tuberculosis. <laughs> and again, the patient okay. had uh, nystagmus and chest pain during the transfusion. Um, okay. And he kept using it. He gave it uh, in before a large audience in charity hospital to a woman with pulmonary tuberculosis. And this okay. time he said, maybe it's the transportation or I'm bringing it from too far out. So a goat was brought into the room milk. So through... I'm
2: thinking like it, it got spoiled on the way there or something mm-hmm. like I needed to be fresh.
3: Okay. <laughs> yeah. He wanted the, the freshest milk possible. Sure. Milk <laughs> through carbolized gauze, which is kind of like dropping it through a disinfecting Clorox wipe. Sure.
2: <laughs> Sure. Okay. Okay. Okay.
3: And gave it to the patient four ounces. Now, although she did have a few spasmodic respirations, she seemed to improve at the conclusion. And that was sort of where he stopped. He's like, listen, this one didn't die. I'm calling it a day. (laughs)
2: Let's, let's not go any further. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh okay. but well, well we'll come back to him in a moment so that was 1878 uh, however the most outspoken advocate of milk transfusion was a Dr. T.G. Thomas also in New York City okay. so a lot of this was mm-hmm. in New York a lot of a lot of milk related health issues in New York right. and <laughs> in 1875 he transfused cow's milk for uterine hemorrhage oh,
2: okay oh, got you, got you. okay gotcha gotcha okay
3: and uh any thoughts as to how that might go santosh
2: uh, <laughs> twitching nystagmus yeah. you know, chest pain death
3: so well not death after 6 ounces of milk had been administered she felt like her head felt Whoa. like bursting okay. and then okay. developed tachycardia and high fever but did end up experiencing some improvement later in the succeeding week so uh,
2: well probably cuz she was just you know, she had stopped bleeding and her, <laughs> use, her, her bone marrow was just making red cells. Yeah. Okay.
3: So he did this on seven or eight patients over the next couple of years. And his rationale was that milk is more like Kyle, uh, not the kid from South Park. <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> not not that Kyle. Co- this is C-H-Y-L-E. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And Santosh, why don't you tell us what Kyle is?
2: Uh so kyle is kind of a uh, a byproduct of um when your body gets filtered through your lymphatic system, um the end uh role, you know, kind of end point for it is a big lymphatic uh, vessel called the thoracic duct, which hooks up on the left side of your body um, before it goes into the vena cava into one of your big veins. That material, okay, when your lymph uh, system cleans up everything and clears everything out, you've got some living white cells, some dead cells, debris from, you know, bacteria and everything else that you're. Immune system has kind of cleared up through the lymphatic system, and for because there's so much cellular debris and material, you have large amounts of um, fat and cholesterol from the cell membranes. So it's kind of a to actually see it is like a brownie sludgy thing, but because it's the the parts of the you know your your blood that contains all your immune components it also has a bunch of white cells antibodies and fat.
3: and so in that sense from the components it's not inconceivable to think why milk was thought to be a potential substitute for blood
2: yeah it, no it it does make sense you've got you know largely um uh, you know water And in that suspension, you've got, just like you said, fats, proteins. You do have antibodies, um, specifically in proteins, those antibodies. And then you have some electrolytes. You have sodium and potassium. So, yeah, intuitively, you're right. It it makes sense.
3: So... After Beauville and Hodder had done cow milk and Howe had done goat milk and T.G. Yeah. Thomas had tried cow milk, near the end of this period of milk transfusion popularity, when people were starting to realize, no, we probably should just stick to what started in the arteries <laughs> and veins and not yeah. uh, add anything
0: else. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited
1: Premium Wireless. I it get 30, 30, get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15,
0: 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,
3: Um, right. How decided to attempt one final experiment in 1880 to determine whether human milk might prove superior to cow or goat, figuring that okay. perhaps it was simply a Xeno transmission issue.
2: Sure. Meaning that Xeno meaning foreign. So the you know proteins and everything that are in there are too foreign and the body recognizes it as foreign and attacks it. Sure. So Absolutely. he
3: attempted the infusion of three ounces of milk obtained from a healthy postpartum woman. Yeah, it does not say how it? he obtains three ounces.
2: Yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay.
3: And gave it to a young woman with, again, tuberculosis, suppurative lung disease. And shortly after she received it, she complained of chest pain and back and stopped breathing (laughs) and stopped breathing after two ounces had been given. But don't worry, don't worry. She was resuscitated with injections of morphine and whiskey. (laughs) That's
2: awesome. (laughs) Resuscitated with an injection of whiskey? You're lying to me.
3: Resuscitated by artificial respiration accompanied with multiple injections of morphine and whiskey.
2: <laughs> they could have just given the respirations without the morphine and whiskey. <laughs> oh my gosh, A- injecting alcohol like that straight into your vein.
3: I'm I'm
2: I hope she was passed out because that must have burned like fire.
3: Um, maybe that's what they used course- to resuscitate her.
2: <laughs> oh, maybe that will <laughs> <laughs> Just, ah. <laughs> don't do that the morphine, of course, being a sedative, would act against you know any kind of resuscitation effort, so it's a not it's a small miracle that that poor woman woke back up. It speaks to her resilience uh,
3: after after this failed result, Howe concluded that human milk was no more suitable for transfusion than any other dairy producing creature. And enthusiasm. Yay. And yeah. enthusiasm for this quickly waned.
2: <laughs> this sounds not like it was incredibly niche, but it sounds like there were like a few champions of this that lasted for a little bit of a while. But perhaps, and I, I don't have anything to back this up right here, but um, you know, perhaps it wasn't you know, super widely accepted. And maybe there were quite a few like critics. Of this. God, uh, it, God
3: however, okay. the 1850s is not the only time people have attempted to use milk as a medical solution for something. In fact, it's still okay. being done today, although in a much different context, we're no longer trying to transfuse milk. We are, however, <laughs> yeah. baking it, and giving it as a form of oral immunotherapy.
2: Oh, okay, okay. So for those people who are allergic to milk, um, this would be uh, desensitization.
3: Yeah, so, well, clinical studies have shown that a majority of milk and egg-allergic children can tolerate these allergens when they have been modified to baked form. Okay, gotcha. And there have been immunologic changes, although this is way more up your study, or, way more up yes. your alley. Yeah. Immunologic changes reported in folks that have ingested baked milk and egg combinations that okay. can mirror those seen in food allergy immunotherapy trials, as well as the fact that these allergies tend to resolve in populations regularly ingesting baked milk and egg. Uh, so, there's a couple different directions you could go with this, you know, in terms of oral food challenges. Mm -hmm. and one of the most potentially exciting outcomes is you know yes you help people get over milk and egg allergies which as somebody who grew up with a lactose intolerance severe enough to be close to a milk allergy let me tell (laughs) (laughs) you let me tell you it would have been real nice
2: (laughs) well and this is a little bit of difficulty here josh because i'm so so sorry to kind of disappoint but This would not work on your lactose I know.
3: But (laughs) but for those who don't understand, what's the difference between a lactose intolerance and a true milk allergy?
2: Sure. So lactose intolerance is caused by the lack of the enzyme lactase in your gut. And this is actually the enzyme that breaks down the lactose sugar into its two components. It's called a disaccharide two sugar. And that way you can break that sugar into simple things and you can absorb it. If you don't have that enzyme, that what happens is your beautiful resident bacteria, rather than metabolizing (laughs) that lactose in a nice way, will ferment it. (laughs) And you get gorgeous products like methane coming out (laughs) of both ends. And also, heavy osmolar particles like uh, sugars and the, the alcohols and stuff that cause you to have bad diarrhea a lot of the time. The allergy is when you absorb the protein from your intestinal tract into your bloodstream. And that's usually to the proteins, not to the uh, sugars, and your body sees those proteins as foreign agents and uh, attacks them um, using our allergy pathway. And those people actually don't have, you know, the farting and the bloating and the diarrhea. Um, they'll have something that are like allergic symptoms. So hives and sometimes congestion and trouble breathing and wheezing and all the way to severe allergies like anaphylaxis where you need emergency care. So it, that's that's hardly ever the case with lactose intolerance that you need emergency care. Although, Josh, yours sounds pretty... Uh, <laughs> Maybe I mean,
3: back back in the day. And for those yeah. of you who are similarly uh genetically Afflicting? deficient or yeah. afflicted,
2: blessed Which, by the way, is the majority of the world.
3: <laughs> I just want to share I want to uh. share with you something that changed my life. Uh cheeses older than three years or any mm. aged dairy product older than three years, yes, most yes. of the lactose has broken down to lactic acid, which can yeah. be digested. So <laughs> you don't right. have to cut you don't have to cut <laughs> all cheese and dairy out of your life. It's my, That's my holiday <laughs> gifts to you.
2: <laughs> your other bypass is to use uh, foods that uh, dairy foods that have been processed in such a way that the lactose has been broken down. So other popular alternatives, for instance, are yogurt and buttermilk.
3: That's nuts.
2: <laughs> no, well, yeah. Not, or, not well, the affiliated,
3: or the affiliated nut dairy beverages. <laughs> um, the other yeah. thing is when you combine these baked milk and eggs to address and feed it as oral immunotherapy to kids who have milk and egg allergies, some of these egg allergies are what prevent young children from being able to receive vaccines. Because, of course, there are a couple of vaccines that do require, well, for lack of a better word, egg incubation.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, we call it propagation, propagation through the eggs.
3: I knew there was a nation in it somewhere. (laughs) Yes,
2: there's always a nation, egg nation.
3: But if you feed baked milk and egg to kids, you can actually help them overcome this allergy and then enable them to receive some of these vaccines that'll help prevent their getting, that'll help promote their good health.
2: Right. And of course, along with, you know, being able to, you know, drink milk, milk products uh, and, and eggs, well, sometimes the, the eggs too in there. This is really cool, Josh, because the alteration of the proteins and their normal configuration to kind of fool your enteric tract, and then, you know, the, the allergy pathways in your body to say, oh, you know what, this protein doesn't quite make me react like that. And then you acclimatize, you acclimatize slowly such that the the immune arm, the, the that our arm of our immune system that, you know, creates allergies, uh, that pathway gets less and less kind of freaked out overseeing that so this mechanism is brilliant i absolutely love it it's so cool
3: so while you are getting you know ground up figgy puddings to help (laughs) diminish these allergies uh i am sorry to impart that one of the other most common things you've heard about milk is a Mm -hmm. lie and let's let's go into that oh yeah when you think milk santosh if i'm I'm showing you any milk commercial, got milk or Alan Burr or any of those. (laughs) One of the biggest claims you remember from your childhood about milk.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, Strong bones is the biggest one Uh, is, uh, oh yeah, absolutely drink your milk. It's, you know, it's full of these, you know, vitamins and minerals that make for strong bones and uh, muscle also, you know, in a lot of cases it would help build, you know, big muscles. So you'd see a lot of those commercials with athletes, you know, very active kids running around that kind of a thing. And, you know, you'd have a little milk mustache and be like, uh, you know, does a body good. That's the one that I think you and I grew up on that campaign yeah. by the dairy lobby, like an association of, you know, uh, I guess dairy farmers or, or, you know, people who are in that industry who got together to, to advertise milk.
3: And so that strong bones has been really pounded into us at, from every walk of life, you know, to the point that people don't even think about. They're just, they just accept, yeah, milk, strong bones. That's what happens. That's why yeah. cows are all built like tanks. Uh, but <laughs> sure. But specifically in a subset of the population known as the elderly who are at risk for osteoporosis or weak bones. Mm-hmm. or porous bones. Uh, yep, the, <laughs> the thought was, well, they should drink milk to get good, healthy, strong bones and prevent fractures. So the Harvard School of Public Health published a study titled Milk, Dietary Calcium and Bone Fractures in Women. That was a 12-year prospective study investigating whether higher intakes of milk and other high calcium foods would reduce the risk of bone fractures and osteoporosis. And what they okay. defined as high intakes of milk was two or more glasses a day over a 12-year period.
0: Uh, oh, which okay, is all right.
3: So, yeah. Pretty moderate. Yeah. That's that's, uh, that's
2: good. That's not crazy. Yeah, absolutely.
3: And it did nothing. Two <laughs> two or more glasses oh. a day. Did not reduce the incidence of osteoporosis or bone fractures in any kind of meaningful or significant way. So it turns yeah. out that while it may provide some benefit to young growing children, uh, downing glass after glass of milk is doing nothing to prevent osteoporosis. Um, although I suppose it could still be providing calories or address other nutritional deficiencies, but bones Possibly. is not one of them
2: yeah <laughs> and this is another one of those things josh where um again it makes intuitive sense that there is a large amount of calcium phosphorus vitamin d in you know cow's milk, which is by and large what's used in you know in the Western world, definitely here in the United States, um, along with um, folate, a couple of other uh, you know key um, micronutrients, vitamins. So it makes some intuitive sense that it would work. But this is why it's so so important to take. These intuitions, these hypotheses, these theories, and properly put them to the test because this is how the scientific process moves our knowledge forward. And so it's super important. Now, milk is a huge part of our culture uh, in terms of, you know, here in the United States. I don't know that will like all of a sudden hit a light switch and be like, Oh, this is what the scientific consensus is. And you know, the, you know, the, the amount of milk we ingest or milk products will suddenly go away. Um, so, you know, it, it is another thing to get something that's so embedded in our culture, you know, kind of to take those lies away and actually make them go away. It might take generations.
3: Well, Santosh, I've given you a number of stories That should horrify you about milk and and have you leave a glass (laughs) of water out for Santa. But (laughs) I I don't think I've ruined cookies yet.
2: No, so far, yes, it's been milk, 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 milk. Absolutely.
3: And uh, I think we need to do at least one story on cookies. Although I told you when researching this episode, it's really hard to find a medical story about cookies.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think the cookies may have a better lobby than the dairy (laughs) lobby at this point, because they're very popular.
3: You can't
2: can't find anything damning them.
3: I mean, there was a brief one about how uh, cookies were quite literally more addictive than heroin, but it was for mice. (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, that's true. And and I, I know we're going backwards just a little bit, but we also had that with dairy when we found morphins You remember when we covered that? Oh, yeah, that's like right. actually opiate, opiate type particles in cheese. It, it's not a true thing. Those things can never get to your brain in, a, in a high enough concentration to cause, <laughs> cause them to to, to actually hook onto morphine or opiate uh, channels. But yeah, yeah, I remember the. Him, the... Folks,
3: your body's full of tiny little morphins They look like Doritos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: But yeah, yeah. I I, I do remember we, we talked about it too. Yeah, the the cookie addiction, which I I'm totally, yeah, I, I believe that.
3: But I sat there digging through every possible resource to find a single story, racking my brain to think what about cookies ties into medicine. And then I went to go get a snack and in <laughs> front of me the yeah. the only true forbidden fruit in in human history. Okay. A tube of raw cookie dough.
2: Oh, stay away, Josh. Stay away.
3: And you have to ask yourself, well, sure. There's a risk of salmonella.
2: <laughs> but so the just like we do in evidence-based medicine, right, Josh? Risk versus benefit.
3: <laughs> right. So, so let's yeah. crunch some numbers here.
2: Okay. Oh god. If if you come up with a conclusion, that <laughs> I'm a little scared that you're going to come up with. We may have to put a giant ass disclaimer.
3: <laughs> benefit, benefit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Raw cookie dough is delicious. <laughs> uh, okay. Now, now let's. Only about <laughs> one in every twenty thousand eggs is contaminated. Oh right. yeah, yeah. So 1 in 20,000 is your starting risk. Uh, But, you know, that number decreases a little bit every year. Furthermore, Mm -hmm. if the eggs are pasteurized, as they are in most standard doughs like Nestle Tollhouse and things like that, the chance of salmonella decreases even more. But it doesn't drop to zero. In fact, as recently (laughs) as 2009, a woman died from a contaminated batch of cookies that were infected with not salmonella but E. coli and specifically sure. E. coli O57, 157 0157 H7, 07. Oh, yeah. bingo. o
2: 0157 H7. So those are actually the uh, surface molecules on there, how we designate uh, a particular strain of E. coli. And this one's very, very toxigenic. Um, and can cause bad, bad colitis, and then subsequently actually can cause damage to things like kidneys and stuff later on because of the immune reaction to it.
3: But back to crunching numbers. So we'll 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 circle back. You know, that's E. coli. We're dealing with salmonella right now. I can only worry about one bacteria at a time. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) Similarly, in the United States, there are about Mm. 42,000 cases of salmonella each year resulting in 400 deaths. Uh, Now those are not all cookie dough related cases and deaths. That's just overall salmonella. Right. Right. Okay. And we've already said one in 20,000 cookie dough or egg related uh, (laughs) infections, but only 400 deaths. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating for any particular (laughs) thing. I'm simply saying the number of cases involving raw eggs doesn't even reach the thousands. Uh, No. So, so, (laughs) if, if one were to decide to attempt what I cannot legally recommend.
2: No, no, no. Or, or ethically or ethically
3: what I cannot legally or ethically recommend mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> or to attempt this, the safest way to do it would be one, keep your eggs at 45 degrees Fahrenheit or below at all times, which right. know, below uh-huh. that degree, salmonella just can't grow. Also yeah. yep, yep. make your own cookie dough uh, because yes, you know where your ingredients than... are coming from.
2: Right. Right.
3: Uh, and part of the reason for that is, Remember that E. coli case we talked about a little bit earlier? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that probably wasn't from the eggs; it was from the flour.
2: Oh, that's yes, absolutely. Because when you have, of course, any kind of grain, um, you know, if there's fertilized, well, uh, cow poop runoff kind of thing, uh, it's not part of the processing, but it's it's not really. Um, taken out of there as the grain is being processed. So, it, uh, if you bake with it, uh, you know you're killing pretty much everything in there because they're not going to be able to stand that heat. You know, a four hundred degree oven. But yeah, in a raw form, absolutely, it would still carry the the bacteria.
3: Hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was caused by contaminated flour. So you know, yeah. that's why I said ignore that E. Coli. Your real risk for the most part again as we're as we're playing the Vegas cookie odds sure uh,
2: <laughs> sure with with your life <laughs> the
3: the the keebler roulette uh-huh. uh <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> giving our money I'm, to the toll paying the toll just, house
2: i just think <laughs> and shouting a
3: little... <laughs> and shouting chips ahoy <laughs>
2: Just, i'm imagining that little the pillsbury doughboy guy the little hee hee guy but just like ah, ah, ah.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> all like looking like you know how the they that common sci-fi trope of the cute little thing and then it all of a sudden it goes ah <laughs> you <get> too close. <laughs> uh, i'll i'll kill you haha <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, um and i have to say we hear about it all the time the risk is there but it is low and i personally i have never seen a patient with a salmonella infection from this specific type of ingestion usually it's from some kind of fast food or undercooked uh meat uh more often than not
2: Right. By far and away, uh, we find it in pediatrics where if a person is preparing, uh, the the classic one, Josh, is raw chicken. And unfortunately, just the way that it sits in the fridge and everything else like that, there's just a high probability of enough of the bacteria sitting on the surface. And when you warm it up to cut it, uh, you know, on the cutting board and that kind of thing, on one spot, and then usually... You know, it it doesn't come just from like eating the raw meat right then and there, but people don't wash their hands before moving to another part of the kitchen where they prepare another dish or something like that. And that bacteria gets transferred into there. And so that's, that's the classic uh, kind of transmission that we usually see.
3: And as a cooking tip, usually having separate cutting boards for meat and vegetables is always a good idea. But yeah. following the 2009 E. coli cookie outbreak, the, the great toll house of,
2: <laughs> <The> great-
3: <laughs> of 29, uh, yeah. the cookie maker did change its formula and added a written warning and also began heat treating the flour further lowering the risk. So what I'm saying, right. folks, is I'm not telling you to go out and eat raw cookie dough, but I am telling no, you the risks no. have gotten a lot less than they even used to be. So you have to decide <laughs> at the end of the day when you open up that package of Oreos, do you feel lucky, punk? Well, do ya? <laughs>
2: um, I will put it out there, Josh, that I think a lot of companies have actually thrown their hands up in the air in (laughs) (laughs) we can't stop you kind of thing. So they, there are recipes out there for edible cookie dough um, where, you know, just like you said, you treat the flour, you make it yourself. You usually don't even (laughs) include eggs in there. Um, And Betty Crocker, um, uh, along with a few other companies that we can see has created safe, edible cookie dough because they just they just realized listen you're gonna do this anyway let's just make sure we don't kill you and so you put it right on the box
3: to paraphrase (laughs) the wonderful author terry pratchett all cookie dough is edible some cookie dough is edible once
2: yeah Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, if you want it to be edible multiple times, please look for these packs. Um, just like you were saying, Josh, bleached flour, you know, heavily treated. And then usually they're lacking eggs. They don't have any eggs, but um, I'm sure it tastes absolutely scrumptious.
3: With all this in mind, perhaps those of you leaving a snack out for Santa this year may be better off mm. with carrot sticks and peanut butter. <sighs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wash them
3: and peel them, please. Right. (laughs) And we won't ruin that till next year.
2: (laughs) Although, should we go ahead and tell them how uh, the vitamin A in carrots will not help your vision?
3: (laughs) I said we wouldn't ruin it till next year. (laughs) So that's it for this year's Christmas episode.
2: (laughs) Yeah, ho, 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 everybody. (laughs)
3: As always, we'd love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. We have a brand new website. Go to it. You can interact with us. Send us your questions, your thoughts, your comments, your support that is spiritual, emotional, or financial. Uh, Links to do all of those are in the show notes as well as on our new website. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Happy holidays, and I guess don't eat that raw cookie dough, but think real hard about it.
2: Okay. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Go. Bye. Bye, everybody, before we kill anybody else. Bye. <laughs>